And I'm Stephen. I'm the pastor here. And I want to invite you to, if you have a Bible on your phone or one of these old-fashioned ones, you can open up to Philippians chapter 4. Uh, if you didn't bring one, that's okay. The verses we're going to be looking at are in the bulletin. There's a place there to take notes as well. Uh, and before we look at the verses today, though, I want to I want to set the stage for what we're about to read because the Bible is a story, okay? It's a story about life, about God, and about people and their interactions. And even the letters that are at the end of the Bible are stories. They're telling us stories of the lives of people who are trying to walk with God, who are trying to figure out faith. And so... It's not just that the stories in the Bible are the stories about Jesus, but the letters reveal stories. And God uses these stories about people from a long, long time ago to speak to us even today. So today, we're going to read this ancient story of this ancient relationship between a person and a group of people. And God's in the middle of it, and you're going to feel like, whoa. This is kind of the magic of the Bible, is that when you read it, you think, man, this, this is speaking to my life today. How is that possible? Uh, the person who wrote the letters, a guy named Paul, he was a follower of Jesus. And this Paul was thrown into jail because he was preaching about Jesus. So his, there were people who didn't like the message of Jesus. And so they had the guy arrested, this guy Paul, and they threw him in prison. And being in prison back then, it's kind of similar to being in prison today. Uh, it wasn't the place you wanted to go if your reputation mattered to you. So there are times when you might follow someone who's famous, you might appreciate something that they do, and then you find out that they were arrested and put in jail, and you think, like, dang, uh, there's some nefarious stuff going on in their life that I just didn't know about. They had this life underneath the life that was public. Uh, well, so Paul was in prison, and his reputation was being maligned. It was being destroyed by people who were his opponents, who didn't like the message he was preaching, or some of whom wanted to use the message he was preaching so that they could make money off people. And so this was happening. Plus, Paul was also about to have to face Caesar. So you think about Caesar, the ancient ruler of the Roman Empire, way back when Paul was going to have to face Caesar, and he knew that Caesar might have him killed because... Paul was preaching that this guy Jesus was Lord and Caesar wasn't. And in all of this, Paul was afraid. He had anxiety about this church in the city called Philippi. There was this group of people there that were following Jesus. And Paul was worried that his circumstances would destroy the credibility of his message. And it might destroy the faith of these people in this church in Philippi. So they'd committed to following Jesus, then their leader, the person who started this church, is now in prison, bad things are being said about him, Paul's like, uh-oh, like there's a problem here, like I can't get to Philippi, and I'm afraid that these followers of Jesus are going to fall, they're going to fall away. This group of people in Philippi had supported Paul financially in the past, but what's going to happen to him now that he's in jail and his reputation is being destroyed? Then, one day, while he's in prison, Paul has a visitor. And the visitor is a guy named Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus shows up, and he had something with him. He had a gift for Paul, and it was from the church in Philippi. And that gift was a lot of money. He had a gift. They, they, they had sent 
this gift to Paul to provide for his needs. And this gift was a huge answer to Paul's prayers. It was a huge response to the anxiety that he was feeling. Um, And it wasn't just the money that they sent, but it's what the money meant that was so important to Paul. Because in the ancient world, unlike today, prisons didn't feed prisoners. In the ancient world, if you were in prison and you wanted to eat, you had to provide, you had to buy food somehow. If you wanted to communicate with people outside of the prison, outside of having visitors, you had to pay for your own writing supplies, you had to pay for your own delivery service um, if you wanted to stay in communication with people who couldn't visit you. And so, for Paul, this money was incredibly important. And it gave Paul, this gift gave Paul invincible joy. And so, Paul's joy moves him to then write this letter that we've been studying through. We've been going through it for 18 or 19 weeks. And so it moved him to write this letter. And Paul's joy, this invincible joy, sort of jumps out of every chapter when you understand the story that's behind and underneath this story, or that's that's underneath and behind this letter. And so when we read about this joy that Paul had in the passage that we're going to look at today, we're going to see Paul's joy is going to invite us It's going to invite us onto a path so that we too can have this invincible joy. Um, And this joy is invincible because in it we can see that God is alive and God is working. And he's active in the world through Jesus in the midst of any circumstances that we're facing. And so today we're going to look both at what the Philippians did, but also at, at at what their gift meant to Paul to produce this incredible joy. We're going to look at three things from this passage um, as we see this road that leads to the invincible joy of partnership. So the invincible joy of partnership is what we're going to be looking at. And so first, the first point we're going to see, we're just going to talk about what they did. Okay, we're going to talk about what the Philippians did. And what they did was they gave to support Paul's ministry. That's what they did. They gave money to support Paul's ministry. We see this in verses 14 through 16 of Philippians 4. They're in your bulletin. They're going to be on the screens. It says this. Nevertheless, this is Paul talking. You, Philippian church, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. So we see here, Paul is saying, you shared in my distress. They knew that Paul was suffering and they shared in his suffering. And I think this is such a great example with a great sort of title to put on our church's second value. Okay, our church has five values. And our second value is that we are growing in community. We're growing in community. And so they shared Paul's distress. And so this is where the church community acts like a family. They act like they care about each other. They act like if something's affecting you, it's affecting me. And so the community gave to meet the needs of its own. And if you've been around Harbor for any amount of time, you'll know that this happens all the time here too, that we are growing in community. Um, The community gives to meet uh, the needs of its own. And it's not just financial, although that happens, uh, but there's also support that's, that's shared. There's encouragement, there's wisdom, there's physical help that is offered to people that are in need. In, in many ways, we're trying to be a harbor for each other. 
like we're trying to create a safe, like restful place in the water where you can come away from the waves and the torment and the, the, the tumultuousness of the ocean. You can rest for a while. You can be built up so that you can go back in with strength. And so the reality is, and what's underneath growing in community is that we can't do life alone. And the truth is, the good news of the gospel is that we are not alone. Um, the church shared Paul's distress, and they gave financially to support Paul. And they did this in the beginning, the text says, when no one else did. Verse 15, no church shared with me in giving and receiving, but you only. Now, Paul describes their support in a different part of the Bible. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 2-4, through 4, Paul describes it like this, these churches um, he says, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Man, I love this. This is where the gospel turns math upside down, okay? Because the equation here in this verse, <laughs> abundance of joy plus extreme poverty, <laughs> what does that equal, right? Well, it equals thoughts and prayers <laughs> often, right? Oh, I wish I could help you, but, you know, I'll pray for you, I'll, and I'm thinking about you, my heart goes out to you, right? I just, I can't, I'm like, I have extreme poverty. But with the gospel, something else happens, their extreme poverty and abundance of joy have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. And the gospel, when you are moved by the work of Jesus, even when you have nothing, everything that you have, you're willing to share. And they gave beyond their means of their own accord. Like we didn't force them to do this. In fact, they were begging us earnestly for the favor uh, in taking part of the relief of the saints. Man, I, God loves a cheerful giver. This is the kind of giving that God just absolutely loves. And they did it not just once, but multiple times. Look at verse 16. It says, For even in Thessalonica you sent aid once and again for my necessities. And so the people in this church, they sacrificed financially, generously, over periods of time to meet the needs of the ministry. And so this is why we, as a church, this is why our leaders, we ask everyone to support the church financially. It, it's part of what it means to follow Jesus. And we know, like, so here's the problem, is that we know every time we talk about money that there are people on TV, there are people on the internet, when they talk about money, you feel kind of icky. You just feel slimy, right? They feel like they're controlling, they're guilting, they're manipulating, they're making all kinds of crazy promises that if you do this, it's, and it's all, it just feels like manipulation. You can see right through it. We never, ever want to be that kind of church. But we also want to be faithful to put in front of you a pathway that leads to invincible joy. And the reality is that giving financially is the first step on that path from this passage. Financial support, it's an important way to follow Jesus and to partner with the church. So, now, 
our church is supported by so many of you. So many people give to our church. And a few months ago, we made it, uh, we made it clear that our giving was lagging our needs, that our budget was at one place and the, and the giving, the general giving was, was low. And so we talked about it. We let you know the needs. We encourage you to automate your giving so that over the summertime you wouldn't fall behind. And it's amazing because we invited you to take whatever step you were on the, ge- the ladder of generosity, we asked you to take a step up. And so many people in the church responded. Like the church as a whole has responded and they've closed the gap. Um, I'm not sure how you feel about this. We sort of have a little bit mixed feelings. My kids give me a hard time all the time. Dad, Dad, why do you put the finances in the bulletin? I'm like, well, because we want to let the people know, you know, where the giving is in the church. And they're like, Dad, but it's so depressing. Because every time we look at it, the number is so negative. Like these brackets, like these are awful. Like we can see the church is so far behind. And I'm like, well, you know, this is part of us just sort of communicating. We don't want to, like, put it in their face every day or every week, but, like, we want to let them know this is where we're at, you know? And they're like, Dad, you're an idiot. You shouldn't do that. And I'm like, well, maybe I am. I don't know. (coughs) Here's something exciting. Over the last two months, as y'all have responded to our reporting that we have these needs, giving has happened. And what I think might be the first time in our church's history, I think, I think that's not an overstatement, we're actually in a positive for year to date on our giving. That's so exciting. And, and what's exciting, here I can actually say what Paul says, it's not the gift, and we'll look at that in a little bit. It's not the gift, but it's the way that we are partnering together so that the ministry of this church can thrive, can flourish. And so praise God with me and be thankful with me because we've been super thankful as y'all have responded And so what's exciting is that in these verses, Paul sees their financial support as so much more than just financial support, okay? So often for us, it's just like we're just giving money, right? We write a check every week, we give some cash, or we go online, we do the MoGive thing, we text, whatever whatever it is we do, we think we're just giving money. But what you do, it's so much more than that. It is so much more significant, Okay, so in these verses, we saw what they did. Um, Second, what we're going to see today is what it meant. Okay, our second point is what it meant for them to give. And I'm going to give you sort of an overview. This is what it meant. It meant that their gift meant that God is real and the gospel is true. That's what their gift meant. I'm not overstating this. Okay, for Paul, he believed that this gift that showed up with Epaphroditus, this financial gift that they gave to support the ministry of the gospel, it means that God is real and the gospel is true. Let's look at verses 17 and 18. He says, not that I seek the gift. Because remember last week when Bill preached, Paul said, like, I'm content in all of my circumstances. I've learned to be to have plenty, and I've learned to have nothing. Like, I'm good. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He said, I can do this. And so here he says again, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. So to Paul, Paul Paul interpreted their gift 
meaning that God is real and the gospel is true because this gift meant that they still loved Jesus. Okay? Remember, Paul's in prison. He's being maligned. Awful things are being said about him. He is now being, I mean, he's being ashamed, being in prison. And their response to hearing that Paul is in prison wasn't to leave Jesus because their leader was in jail. Their response, they could see that Paul's suffering and his persecution are part of the path of following Jesus. They could see that. For them, they weren't surprised that this happened. Because if the world treated Jesus in the way that it treated Jesus, it makes sense to us that the world's going to treat his followers, especially the leaders, in the same way. And so the Philippians sent this gift, and with this gift, the message that Paul got was, hey, Paul, we know you're in here, and we are in with you. You are in distress. You are suffering, and we are suffering with you. And they have sacrificed. They have given generously and beyond their means, begging earnestly to show Paul that he is not alone in his suffering. I mean, so this is why, again, this is why Paul says, not that I seek the gift, but he's excited about what the gift means. It means the church has not abandoned Jesus. It means that God is actually working in you. That's what he's saying. He's saying God's at work in you. You're experiencing salvation. You are showing that Jesus is Lord of your lives because you're showing that, because you're, you're supporting my ministry, because you are helping me get the message about Jesus out into the world. Jesus is the resurrected Lord. He came back from the dead. He is out of the grave. He's the leader of the world. And you're a bunch of Romans. You're a bunch of Romans, and you have declared that Jesus is Lord and Caesar isn't. Man, Paul was so excited about this. This gave him joy. He realized, man, my work is not in vain. It's possible for a group of people to have an inspiring speaker come and to whip them up and to get them all excited and they act in different ways and while he's there, while she's there, they're acting in different ways and then they leave. And then you go back to life the way it was, right? I mean, how often does that happen to you? You go to a conference, you go to a concert and you have some like transcendent experience. That's how it feels, right? It feels transcendent. It's like a worship experience that you have. And then you get back home and you're like, I mean, with youth camps, you go up on the mountain, you get a mountaintop high, and then you come back to real life and it all fades. Like this is part of Christian camp culture. Um, But when Paul got this gift, when Paul got this gift, it meant that even though he was gone, Jesus was still in Philippi. Jesus was still there. Um, If Paul had any issues with codependency, if he had any issues with boundaries, right, where if they fail, he's going to have all of this pain and anxiety and this frustration because he doesn't want them to leave because they're like his spiritual children. And yet, like, he realizes that, man, they're not following because of him. They're following because of Jesus. And so this gift communicated all of that to him. And this is what Paul means when he says in verse 17, your gift is its fruit that abounds to your account. 
So it's proof that God's at work in your life. It's, it, it's the fruit of God being alive in your life. Because why else would you give a significant amount of money like this? You know, I remember I had a friend who was just starting um, Christian life, just beginning to learn about Jesus. And we started talking about giving and tithing, giving 10%. And they were like, wait, wait, what? I'm like, yeah, the, God's design is that we would give 10% of our money. That's what the Bible says, kind of from beginning to end. It's clear in the Old Testament, but it's, it's pretty obvious in the New as well, if you know where to look. And they go, wait, wait, 10%. That's a lot of money. <laughs> and I was like, well, yeah, I guess it kind of is. And I was like, well, you know, if you start out doing this, like when you first have a job or whatever, it's so much easier. You just live on 90% of your income. And, and then just sort of the first check you write and... But no, I, I, I was like, I haven't really thought about it for a while, but yeah, you're right, it is a lot of money. Um, and they were like, that's a lot of money. And I'm like, yeah, but you know, Jesus, like, you know, he works in your life and you want to support the church and it's changed your life, right? You want to see it change the lives of other people and all this stuff. <laughs> and this person, it's still a lot of money. <laughs> I'm like, you're right, it's a lot of money. It's true. It's true. And, and, and really, so why else would you give like that? Except that God was alive in your life. Except God that was working. Except that you were convinced that Jesus is the Christ. The crucified Lord has been raised from out of the grave and now lives forever and he is the world's true Lord. If that wasn't true, don't give. Save your money and spend it on yourself, right? Um, and so their financial support proved, it was proof to Paul that God was at work in Philippi even when he wasn't there. And this is doubly and even more significantly true because for Paul, remember, for Paul, this was the first time that the non-Jews were hearing the gospel. Okay? This is the first time. So because um, so this is what he says, I think it's, in, it's verse 15, right? In the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no other church shared, right? So this is the beginning stages. This is the beginning of when the gospel, it started in Israel, right? Jesus was Jewish, and he was the Jewish Messiah. And the Jews, you know, so, and so many of them believed in him. But then, now the message is going outside of the nation of Israel. And so for Paul to get this gift from the Philippians, to know that this was proof that Jesus was, was, was alive, that God is real and the gospel is true, now he's thinking, wait, you are also proof that the gospel isn't just for the Jews, but it's for the non-Jews too. The gospel's for the Gentiles. The gospel's at work among the Jews and the Greeks. It's alive in the Roman Empire, and you, your life is proof of that. Your gift is proof that the gospel that has worked well in the lives of thousands and thousands of people in Israel, man, it's also going to work in the Roman Empire, in the most powerful empire in the world. Jesus is being declared as Lord. And so Jesus, this proves that a Jewish Messiah is in fact Lord of every nation. And this isn't just a Jewish thing. And you might think, oh, that sounds kind of cool. And oh, Stephen, that was neat what you just did there. That was neat. Um, <laughs> but let me tell you, 
this, this hits us today. This hits you today. The fact that you are here today, right? We couldn't be farther away from Israel, okay? We could not be farther away on this planet from the nation of Israel, and yet here we are. Here we are. You're here. You have come. Why? Because God is at work in your life. Because Jesus is working, because Jesus loves you, because your sins, you know your sins are forgiven. You know that God has put his presence in you, that he is with you, that he loves you, that he cares about you, and that he's working in you, right? And so you, us, being here today, this family, this community, we are proof. Because we got lots of nations represented here. There's lots of countries represented Lots of family, like our families go back into lots of different places. And so we are not only proof that Jesus is continuing to be Lord of all the nations, but we here are proof that Jesus is the God and the Lord of time. It's not just that it's not a Jewish thing, but it's not an ancient thing. That right now your heart has been stirred because even as I've been preaching, you've been hearing Jesus himself speak to you and you find that this is true. By the power of God's presence in us, when I read the Bible, explain it, help apply it, you feel God's spirit in different ways. You have this sense that it's true and that it's speaking to you. Man, so you are proof that God is real and the gospel is true. That's exciting. I mean, especially when I look out and I know the kind of suffering that you're going through, when I know the kinds of problems that you've had, the kinds of things that you've dealt with, when I know the kind of brokenness that you've had to fight through, the things that you're carrying, the weight on your shoulders, and yet here you are, worshiping Jesus, not because he's giving you everything that you could ever hope to want, but because he is real, he's alive. We are proof that God is real and the gospel is true. So, again, it's so much more about the gift and it's about what their gift meant. Um, I want to say, too, in this, what their gift meant, it also gave them God's approval. Again, just reading these verses and understanding what they mean. If you look, it says uh, at the end of verse 18, he says, your gift was a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Man, your gift means you have God's approval. Your gift means that you have God's approval. Sweet-smelling aroma, acceptable sacrifice. This is language from the Old Testament. This is part of the animal sacrificial system. And I know for so many of us, like, that's kind of weird. It sort of grosses you out. You're not really sure how to process that, how to think about it, especially with animal cruelty stuff. Let, let me just... Let me just reset uh, your thinking on this. When you think about the Old Testament sacrificial system, think barbecue. Okay? I'm totally serious. Think barbecue. One of the main ways that God had his people worship was that God opened up a 24-hour day, seven-day-a-week barbecue. It was called the tabernacle and the temple. That's what happened all the time, every day, all day long. Burn offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings. All these different kinds of sacrifices were made. Why? Because God loves cooked meat. Okay? He does. When a sacrifice is rightly chosen, 
when it's one of the best that you have to offer, when a sacrifice is without blemish because you want to offer to God your best, and when it's offered by a worshiper who has confessed their sins and longs for God and longs to know him, and a priest receives it and offers it the way God designed, in the Old Testament sacrificial system, it's said that that sacrifice, as it roasted on the altar, okay, as it roasted on the altar, it was a sweet-smelling aroma. It's like God is up in heaven going, yes. Some of the sacrifices were so good, God didn't want to share them with anybody. The burnt offerings went entirely to God. Burnt so, it's such a messed up translation. The stuff wasn't burnt. I mean, maybe it was, but like the point was it was so good, God wanted it all for himself, and so it all ascended. The whole sacrifice went up to God, and God alone ate it, okay? Um, with the, the sin offering, the God got some of it because it ascended in the smoke, and then the priest was given it to provide for the needs of the people working in the tabernacle and the temple. And then the peace offering was the best. The peace offering, well, the best. Um, they were all really, really good and wonderful, and they all have w- amazing truths underneath them. We should go through the book of Leviticus sometime. Maybe we will. We will sometime. Not next year, but the year after, maybe. Um, and so the peace offering, though, the peace offering, it went on the altar. A lot of it went to God, and then a portion of it went to the priest, and then you know what? A portion of it went back to the worshiper. And so you come with a peace offering, and you get to take some of the cooked meat back with you, and you eat it. And so you have God and the priest and the worshiper, usually as a family, eating the sacrifice together. Because in the ancient world, to share a, to share a meal meant you were family. That God was saying, not only are you forgiven, but you're adopted. I love you, I care about you, I am with you. And so when sacrifices were offered appropriately, this is what happened. God was pleased, it was a sweet-smelling aroma, it was well-pleasing to God. Friends, what Paul is saying here is that when the Philippians gave their financial gift to Paul, it was an act of worship that made the heart of God delighted. This wasn't just giving money, but it was an act of worship that delights our Heavenly Father. Man, it's not just what they did, but it's what the gift meant. That every gift that you give is an offering of worship to God. So, our financial partnership with the church is a financial partnership with God. We partner with the ministry and everything that goes on in the church. You get credit for it because you've helped support it. You connect with God. You connect it with the church. It is so much more meaningful than just that we're giving money. It's proof that God is real, that God's at work in our lives. Um, And it's proof that the message of Jesus continues to transform people from every nation throughout all of time. Man. I'm guessing that many of you did not know this about your gifts. But this is what they mean. This is what your gifts mean. So, talked about what the, what the Philippians did. We talked about what it meant. Third, and finally, we're going to talk about what it means today. Although, we've already talked about what it means today, right? Because God's Spirit has been encouraging you and speaking to you the way he does through this crazy, ancient, 2,000-year-old letter, and yet you feel like, dang, this is, he's talking to me. 
Uh, but just to drive the point home, uh, what it means today is there's, this is an invitation to joy. This is an invitation to joy. And this is verse 19. Paul says, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Yes. So, in, our, in this partnership with God, God is faithful to us. Man, this is the path to invincible joy. It's the promise from God that God will meet. He will supply all of our needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. And God promises to do for us today what he did for Paul. Like Paul confesses his own testimony here. He says in verse 18, I have all and abound. I am full. That God has provided for all of my needs through your gift. The Philippians have this experience themselves. Like Paul is promising them and then God is promising us that he will do for us what he did for them. Let me say it clearly. When you partner with God and join his kingdom work, God will partner with you to supply all your needs. Now, how does he do that? Well, first, he'll use your work to accomplish this. Okay? This isn't that you're going to go home and there's going to be a check <laughs> for your rent and all your food and everything that you need in the mailbox. Although that has happened for some people in our church because there are times when we can't work and God will meet our needs outside of our ability to provide for ourselves. Very often, God will supply your needs through the strength that he has given you. There's a passage in Deuteronomy. It might be chapter 11. I'll look it up. Um, but it actually says that God has given you strength to produce wealth. So the primary way that God meets your needs is through your own work. But you have to understand, too, that God will give you all of, he'll supply all your needs, not necessarily what you want. Okay, you have to remember that Paul was in prison when he's writing this. <laughs> he wanted a lot of things, but his needs were abundantly well supplied. Okay, and so what's interesting about this is that you will have all that you need to do everything God asks you to do. That's the promise. You will have everything that you need to do all that God has asked you to do. Okay? Now, God also, it's according to his riches. And God is super wealthy. Okay? God is super wealthy. And when I say wealthy, I don't mean financially wealthy. God has the greatest riches, meaning the most significant and wonderful and meaningful and like, like he's got all of that. He's got meaning, he's got hope, he's got significance, he has love, he has all the things that make life amazing no matter how much money you have, right? God has all of it and he's got the money, right? So he's got all of it, okay? And God will supply all your need according to his riches, so to the degree that God is this sort of uber wealthy to the nth degree, not just financially, God will bless you according to what he has. And so there's a song 
that was written, and, the, and one of the lines goes like this, says, Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, for his love and power are such that none can ever ask too much. It's because of who God is, teaches us to ask for anything and everything. You ask, and you ask, and you ask, and you ask, according to your riches, according to your riches, according to your riches. And God says, yes, yes, a thousand times yes. And the only time when God says no to what you're asking for is when what you need is something different. When in order for you to experience wealth to the nth degree, you think that wealth that you're praying for often is just wealth with a you know, dollar sign, right? Um, there is so much of God's riches that he wants to share with us. And frankly, some of those riches come through poverty. Some of those riches come through suffering. There is a hope and a joy. There is a patience and an endurance. There is a strength that comes only when you don't have what you want. And sometimes God's responses, sometimes God's yeses to us are yeses in ways that we didn't ask for, but they're actually what we need. And so this is why I can confidently tell you what Paul told the Philippians, is that my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. The in glory piece means that, man, okay, it's going to look confusing and mysterious now. It's riches. It's genuine riches. It's the presence of God and all that comes from him. <laughs> but in the next life, it's everything you could imagine and even more. So it's, it's everything you're hoping for and more in the next life. And in this life, the glory begins, but it's not completed. Okay? And it comes by Christ Jesus. So this comes, this promise comes to those who follow Jesus, who trust him. And so where are we at? If you share in the distress of others and you give sacrificially over periods of time, that's what the Philippians were doing. And because of that, Paul gave them this promise. And as we close, we have to be honest. This is an act of worship and an act of faith, right? It takes faith to say, hey, 10% is a lot of money, right? It takes faith to dive that deep, to give that much, to give sacrificially, to share in the distress of others. Sometimes it's money, but sometimes just time and energy that it takes to hold the pain of others and to share in their pain and to pray with them and to sit with them and to, to go there with them. But this is what is involved when we follow Jesus because this is exactly what he does for us. Jesus, he didn't give us money. Jesus gave us his life. He died on the cross for our sins so that the thing that separates us from wealth to the nth degree would be taken away. Our sin would be taken away and this promise could be ours. And so what God did for Paul and for the Philippians is an invitation to us today. It's an invitation to follow Jesus, to take a step forward by sharing in each other's distress and by supporting the church in its worship and its work to the best of our ability. Let's pray together. Father, thank you 
thank you for taking a subject like this and making it part of this story of Paul and the church and the Philippians and you and needs being met. God, I, I just pray that, that our hearts and our spirits would be stirred with the desire to live in ways that would show and to be proof that you are real and the gospel's true. Help each one of us to take a step forward, a step up the generosity ladder, uh, to continue to give to the church because we're giving to each other, to continue to support and to share in each other's distress. God, you have loved people so well through our church. We've been able to, to love each other and to communicate your love to each other. Let it continue, God. Thank you for letting us be a harbor. Help us to continue to be a harbor to more and more of San Diego so that people could find hope and joy, an invincible joy in every circumstance. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.